Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by Dr. Keith Wegman as part of the first interview in the Maharishi Vedic Science miniseries. Dr. Wegman heads the Consciousness and Human Potential program at Maharishi International University, where he teaches courses in Sanskrit and MBS. Dr. Wegman is also a teacher of Transcendental Meditation and the director of TM Instruction at the Raj Ayurveda Health Spa. In this conversation, Keith defines Maharishi Vedic Sciences, MBS, and we discuss the nature of consciousness and its relationship to modern science. We next consider the distinctions between philosophy, religion, spiritual tradition, and science. From there, we discuss the perennial philosophy and the idea that there are many ways to the mountaintop. We then discuss the history of Sanskrit and how the MVS interpretation of language differs from that of modern philologists. From there, we discuss the relationship between sound value and human physiology, as well as the potential for vibratory medicine. We next discuss the relationship between name and form as it relates to vibratory consciousness. Then we consider the collective consciousness, benefits of TM, and the broken paradigm of material physiology. We end the conversation discussing the viability of world peace. Outros for this and all episodes available at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist Entangled the Vibes. Please enjoy. So good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Keith Wegman. Keith, great to see you today, and, and thanks so much for joining the show. Excellent to be here. Thanks, Jordan. Absolutely. So Keith is a professor of Maharishi Vedic Science and Sanskrit at Maharishi International University, where I am enrolled in a master's program. And so Keith was actually the first person I was uh, uh, fortunate enough to meet at MIU and was really instrumental in my decision for going there. And so we're really excited today to be kicking off what is the first of a multi-part series on Maharishi Vedic Science. So as we get into that, Keith, maybe it'd be helpful if you give the folks a little bit of your background, and then we can dive into what exactly is Maharishi Vedic Science. Excellent. It's a really good question. My name is Keith Wegman. I'm a father of two teenagers, live in Fairfield, Iowa, which is the location of our university, Maharishi International University. My path into this position um, has been fascinating, I think. Um, I started out um, as a philosophy and art major in college looking for depth and understanding, kind of looking to find myself a little bit while I was in college, I came across um, a meditation practice. A good friend who we both listened to the Grateful Dead. We were good buddies. He was meditating and I thought, you know, this makes a lot of sense. Let me try this. He told me it was very easy, um, that it was an effortless practice, something that I sounded really nice to me because I had tried meditations in the past and and found them to be a bit of a strain or some some difficulty. So I learned how to meditate, and this 
was at the end of my college career and I looked into graduate programs and it turns out there was a university where this meditation practice, the practice of kind of transcending, was central to the studies and it wasn't too far away from where I, where I was in Minnesota, it was in Iowa. So it was a quick jump down, I came and took a look at the university, um, got really impressed and then ended up doing a, a master's program and then a PhD in Sanskrit and Marshy Vedic science here. So after working for maybe 10 years in the private sector, nonprofit organizations, directing a Ayurveda health spa, things like that, I got back into academics. And for the last about four years now, I've been a professor here in this department in Vedic, Marshy Vedic science in a program that we call Consciousness and Human Potential, which I think is actually a great name for the program. Um, so that's sort of the roundabout way that I ended up in this position and doing what I do. Fantastic. And so maybe to kick things off, for listeners who aren't familiar with, you know, I, I'm sure most folks are, are familiar with the concept of meditation, right, of course, at this point. But could you talk about, you know, what makes transcendental meditation different and, and where did you benefit from that practice versus some of those earlier meditation practices you tried in college with with less success so what i found out through experience really is that the the goal of meditation ultimately is to allow the mind to settle down to its quietest and calmest and most settled state the most restful state and in that experience the mind actually kind of expands becomes more and more unbounded more and more um, sort of expand it. And it's a very natural experience. And um, what I had experienced before that, and this, this is through a process that we call transcendental meditation, transcending or the mind settling like that inwardly to calmer and quieter levels is something that many people have experienced very spontaneously and throughout time, throughout history, there are writers and thinkers and philosophers and poets that have described that process very clearly and beautifully. Um, but then many of them describe how they haven't had a systematic way to actually come back to that experience. They have that experience and it inspires them. Maybe it becomes the basis for a lot of their scientific discoveries, things like that. But um, they're always wondering how we can sort of come back to that. So, um, so transcending, there's a there's a very systematic way to bring that about called transcendental meditation. Um, prior to that, what I remember experiencing um, a few Buddhist meditations and maybe just sort of privately working out my own sort of system of meditation. I knew something about that the the goal of meditation was somehow to quiet the mind or become introspective in some way. And um, I found that to be a challenge, you know, where sort of thoughts are always popping in. The mind is always redirecting itself in some, some way. Um, so I didn't know quite how to handle that, but it turns out that this procedure, um, at least of transcendental meditation, is to utilize the thought process in a very kind of easy way, where the mind is, is drawn by its own nature to these quieter and quieter levels, ultimately. And it settles down there, and then you have this very refreshing, sort of inward, you know, rejuvenating experience. You come out of meditation, you open the eyes, 
world seems a lot lighter. It seems more, everything's more relaxed. You have more energy, that kind of a thing. So I think early on, um, after I learned Transcendental Meditation, I found that that was a very stark contrast. And the fact that it was easy and effortless just kind of blew me away. Um, that was one of the things that really stood out. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to kind of pursue that experience inwardly, but also externally and just find out more and more about it. You know, what is this? What does it lead to? You know, what uh, what am I developing through this experience and this practice? So um, I found that very fascinating and that became a sort of uh, momentum to get into this type of work and these studies. But um, that was the main contrast. One one form of meditation was a little bit more of a of a strain, a little bit of sort of dodging thoughts. The other one, very effortless, very easy, utilizing the thought process to kind of go in that inward direction. So meditation generally, I think people have an idea, it's eyes closed, something happens. But really, ultimately, I think meditation is to lead the mind to that calm and quiet and transcendental state of consciousness that everybody has. It's there within, it's already sort of in the background of our awareness. We just don't have that ability to kind of naturally to kind of just come come towards that. So there's a simple technique you can learn to bring that about. So um, that's some ideas about how it works, I guess. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And that's certainly been my experience. You know, I dabbled with some other meditation apps like Calm and Headspace and that kind of thing. And, you know, they definitely were helpful in terms of um, relieving stress and I think, you know, settling my mind. But at the same time, when I was doing them, it, it did feel very much like a chore in a way, right? Like you were having to force it into your your daily routine. And then uh, as I started to hear more about transcendental meditation and started the practice myself about a year ago, it's just been a much simpler process in a way. And it's and I don't know exactly why, it, for me, it's been so much more effective. I certainly think having the one-on-one -on -one instruction of a TM meditation teacher versus just kind of hearing guided meditations like it that was helpful i think as part of it but also just uh yeah i don't know it's and maybe it you know it just happened at the right time in my life where i was really open to that practice more so than when i was you know dabbling before but uh for me it's it's completely different experience in the sense that like the ability to transcend it really does feel cumulative right whereas i continue in my tm practice i feel like i get more and more out of it i feel like it's become you know in contrast to those earlier meditation practices where it felt like a chore, now it's very much the best part of my day. And I look up, I look forward to waking up to it in the morning. I look forward to doing it again in, in the afternoon as well. So, so I don't, I, I don't, I don't really have a question there, but that's just kind of my, my long winded uh, experience personally with the TM practice. <laughs> it's a couple of points that you make there are really, are really important. I think that, that the experience is, is sort of self-motivating, you know, it's sort of, it's, refreshing it's a it's um it doesn't involve intellectual analysis or no no ref mental effort in any way it's sort of the reduction of mental effort in a very natural way um through the practice and i think that's a big part of meditation you know it's uh if it feels like a chore then you're less likely to kind of make it a regular habit and so if it's if it's enjoyable it's refreshing and you notice really good results outside of meditation. I think that's a real key. You know, the practice itself is simple, but outside with eyes open, getting into your activities, you feel more settled, a little more balanced inside generally. And so these are some of the things you mentioned. I think that's, that's a real key. Totally.
And you mentioned for undergrad that you were studying philosophy. So I'm curious, what do you think it was that uh, drove you to be interested in philosophy? And then what does the word philosophy even mean to you? Yeah. I think there was a course, um, introductory course in philosophy at the school I went, went, went to St. Olaf College, a small school in Minnesota. And um, it was, I don't remember the name of the course, but I remember one of the topics that we were studying was happiness. And I'd never entertained the idea of trying to figure out what happiness is. It was really, it's fascinating to me to be in a course where we could kind of systematically think about that. And um, and so I think I think that drove me to consider more what you know what do I do I consider happiness and and so just that kind of that um, introspective type of thinking that comes along with philosophy. I mean, philosophy is a sort of pondering of the of the deepest questions in life on the surface of it. It's also um, I mean, philosophy means the um, the love of wisdom, like that. So both of those were kind of very interesting to me. I I didn't consider myself a natural philosopher. I never really kind of thought like a lot of the philosophers that I read, like John Stuart Mill and Heidegger and <clears throat> Kant and all these. But I found something in what they were saying very intriguing, and it it had appealed to me on a on a deeper level, the the interest in sort of broadly understanding what life is all about. So I think philosophy just sort of entertains those crucial questions that a lot of us happen upon or come across every once in a while. Some people more often, but for for everybody, there's some moments where you think, you know, what is this? What is the meaning? What's the purpose? What's the goal of life? Um, what is what is happiness? What am I after? So all these basic questions sort of hit me right at that moment in college, and then I sort of turned that into a major and sort of pursued it. Great. And so you talked about, you know, obviously doing your master's at MIU, where you're now a professor, and we mentioned that you're teaching both Maharishi Vedic Science and Sanskrit. And so, uh, you know, people have likely heard of Sanskrit as a language, but don't really know the, the background of it. So maybe we should parse those out. Um, why don't we start with Maharishi Vedic Science, and, you know, wh- what does that even mean? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. You know, the, the way people would often ask me that when I told them that was my major, that was my master's and PhD. And I would respond something to the effect of, it's the study of consciousness and human potential. <laughs> and I think I literally used those words. And eventually we changed the name of the program, the master's program that you're in, to that, to consciousness and human potential. So it's really the study of that People think of Vedic science, maybe they've heard of the Vedas, or they've certainly heard of the Upanishads and the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita. These are all the, the sort of the literature of this ancient, what is an ancient and continuously practiced tradition of knowledge. So the Vedic tradition in India is considered by the United Nations to be the oldest continuous tradition of knowledge in the world. That means it's been practiced in the same way essentially for a few thousand years, at least, or, or more. And so Marshi Vedic Science has the name Marshi in front of it. Really, in the last half of the 20th century, uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi revived sort of the core 
practice the core experience of the Vedic tradition, which which is this the same process um, of the mind settling down, experiencing its own inner nature, and then expanding. And it's a personal experience. You know, you can have that. Anybody can have that experience. But it's also there's something very universal about it. Some some unboundedness, some universality about it. Um, and that's really what Marshy kind of opened up. He emphasized that this technique that he taught, he, he called it transcendental meditation. Um, it's really a form of yoga and meditation from this ancient tradition, but he called it transcendental meditation or TM. And it's, it's really, he started bringing out this practice as an ideal sort of antidote to the really fast and dynamic and often chaotic and stressful pace of modern life. And that was back in the 50s. You know, we look back at the 50s as being kind of, you know, um, a more settled time, you might say. But but even back then, you know, there was plenty of stress and maybe it's even gotten more now. So he thought, this is something I need to really teach everybody. Um, because he noticed from the, the ancient tradition that there was descriptions of life as bliss, that life is really made up of bliss or ananda, ananda. And, um, and why, you know, if that's the nature of life, why aren't people experiencing that? So this is part of the things that drove Maharishi. So, so he brought out this practice, and then many, many people started to learn, ultimately millions of people. And then, and then he went further into the understanding of this Vedic tradition. So not only sort of the core technique or technology from this ancient tradition, but then the understanding of all these different aspects of Vedic literature. And that includes the fields of Ayurveda. Ayurveda is an ancient, natural, comprehensive system of healthcare. Um, Tapatyaveda is an ancient, natural, holistic system of architecture. The Yoga Sutras and all the practices of yoga, pranayama and asanas, things like that. All these things are there in this, in this tradition, so he went very deeply and sort of located the primary position of consciousness within within all these practices and understandings of bodies of literature. So he, in a sense, he really revived this ancient tradition. He sort of, you know, for for centuries it had sort of been decimated or scattered because of foreign rule and and invasions and stuff throughout India. All of the the techniques and traditions sort of became a little more withered and sort of and broken up. And so I think what what Maharishi really did is to sort of revive and refresh everything from its foundation to its applied value. So it's it's incredible the amount of work that he did over over that time then from the nineteen fifties up through the early two thousands. And so that's what we teach in the program and that you've had some experience with that. Now I think we've You've probably taken the Bhagavad Gita. You've um, looked at maybe some of the brain research, uh, perhaps the physics. Uh, that's I think that's coming up for you. But so it's connecting now this ancient tradition of knowledge and and science of consciousness to what is now a really fascinating and emerging field of study of consciousness in the neurosciences, in the cognitive sciences, in in psychology and physiology. So this particular field of study is deeply, deeply ancient, but now it's 
it's really cutting edge in terms of um, you know modern science and what what they're looking into. Yeah, and I think all those confluences of ancient traditions that had been either lost or obfuscated, combined with as we've kind of touched in the past, I think the bias of Western science and medicine to kind of dismiss everything from, you know, non-Anglo cultures as, as less sophisticated, right? And so for me, you talk about the science piece of Maharishi Vedic science, right? When you look at the work that folks like Dr. John Hagelin and, you know, Dr. Tony Nader are doing and bringing the most cutting edge, innovative string theory and knowledge about neuroscience and then applying to this Vedic tradition that Maharishi brought out. And, you know, that is what shows you, like, not only is the, are the, philosophical implications huge but also the scientific implications are just absolutely groundbreaking and you know you bring those together and recognize they're not they're not contradictory right there's no spirituality or science right they're one and the same yeah this is a really good point i mean i think this is coming out more and more the language that people have used throughout history has always been different but many of the great thinkers and the wise of the ages are referring to the exact same thing, just using slightly different language based on where they are in the world and what their background is. But you can see in, in the records of, of history that many, many people are describing this inner reality of consciousness very closely together. So it is, it's the same thing, just, just different languages being used. So that is one of the most fascinating things I think that you've got the spiritual and the scientific as being like two sides of the same coin. It's really just two differences of approaches to the same central reality. And and that's just, it's very exciting to see what's coming out in that, in that respect. Absolutely. And I want to ask you some more about the Vedic tradition, in particular with its relation to what we consider, you know, modern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism. And I think one of the, uh, you know, kind of getting back to that Western bias, I think another thing that people in the West or, you know, modern society tend to think is like anything that's rooted in these ancient traditions is too much like religion. And so therefore any scientific type person should shun it. So, so I guess my question is, you know, how do you distinguish between what is Vedic tradition, what is a modern religion and, and kind of where, where are the overlaps between those? Yeah, that's a really good, a really good question. Um, Vedic science and the Vedic tradition, in itself, is not um, not associated with a particular religion. For long, long years, thousands of years, it was simply a um, both a systematic understanding of nature and natural law, but also just a daily practice and a daily kind of routine. So meditation being the central central um, experience of that tradition was never considered in terms of a religion that's separate from other religions. It was just considered a sort of a way of life, like a, a daily practice, like taking a walk or brushing your teeth. It's it was just a it was a feature of of life and existence. It was it was a part of the educational system and um, a part of daily life of of the people. And, um, and there was no sort of uh, prescription or description of this as a religious practice in the way that we think about it now. 
we see different religions in contrast to each other. Ultimately, all religions, I think, are, if you look back in the, at the core principles of each religion, they're all, again, describing that, you know, be still and know that I am God, or um, um, heaven is, is within all these things that, that Jesus spoke and others spoke, in the Tao and the Buddhist religions, all those things. So those are different. I think religions could be considered as just different different approaches to the kind of the true underlying reality, and uh, with different styles and different different uh, practices, perhaps. But the Vedic tradition was was simply it was really, in essence, it was very scientific because not in the sense of Western science where we are looking out into the world through our, our senses of perception and through their extension, you know, using microscopes and, and telescopes and all the modern machinery that, that allows for a very deep, precise in, in, um, look into life. Um, but they took an, an inward direction. They did their exploration of the universe by, again, closing the eyes, allowing the perceptual apparatus to settle down along with the mind and probe deeper values that way. So, um, it's in a, in essence, then I think it's a real scientific tradition, um, but um, also very practical, looking at the big big picture in life. Now, in terms of modern day sort of Hinduism and things like that, there are certainly a big overlap. But I think um, even Hinduism these days doesn't quite it doesn't quite fit in the same category. It's it's a very open, as I understand it, my wife is Hindu, um, it's a very open, very accepting, uh, very inclusive um, form of re- religion in that it does recognize all other religions as just different pathways to God or to the highest value, the highest potential. Um, so it's not... I think fundamentally it's not in distinction or in conflict with any other religion for that reason. It sort of sees everything as as, as approaches to the deepest reality. Um, but it has, in, in many ways, you know, there are parts of it now that have, have, um, have set up, you know, sort of these distinctions and maybe conflicts, seeing, you know, conflicts maybe between Islam and, and Hinduism sort of on the Indian subcontinent. But those, like like many sort of modern religions, sometimes are missing the fundamental core principles. They've sort of forgotten those basic values that um, that are there. And so um, so anyway, those are those are some contrasts, but I think that's one of the unique things that I've learned is that Hinduism, like the Vedic tradition, is open to all these different, approaches because it sees them all as valid ways to the top of the mountain as it were um so (laughs) some thoughts there yeah no that makes a ton of sense and that philosophy or kind of understanding of the spiritual traditions really was instrumental for me personally in terms of my uh philosophical development because you know i definitely grew up like my mom was Catholic. My dad was Jewish. You know, I had a bar mitzvah, but was never like too firmly steeped in any spiritual tradition, you know, and certainly 
had a negative, and I, I'd say I still tend to have a pretty negative overall view of organized religion, and especially ones that say, you know, you have to worship my God, and if you take any other God as your own, well, you know, then you deserve to be murdered, right? Like, that just, that never made any sense to me. Um, and then you kind of talk about some of these ideas and, and this kind of theme of, like, the perennial philosophy that you've seen philosophers bring out, and, you know, like in the Rick Veda, truth is one, the wise call it many names, and, and really starting to explore for myself what what a lot of these spiritual leaders like maharishi you know like the buddha like jesus were actually saying and not the message that's been transmitted to us by the folks who run the kind of the the organized religions that have kind of appropriated those the spiritual traditions and then you see oh wow there actually is much much more in common with all these spiritual traditions than there is in conflict yeah i think this is a really good point jordan i i think anybody that that looks closely at some of the, you know, the real foundational texts and, and writings and, and experiences of the founders and of, of these various religions will ultimately kind of see these same, same things. You know, they, they'll see these core principles coming out and realize that, you know, this idea of any conflict or of exclusivity, maybe even, is, isn't really necessary. You know, it'd be like saying, you know, this language is the only language and everybody should speak this language. You know, all the different languages are, are beautiful. They all reflect, you know, different cultures and climates and geographies and and uh, things like that. So it, it's it's silly to, to take an exclusionary approach. And that was always one of my issues as well growing up. I didn't feel like that was right. It just didn't seem like a... Um, a value that made sense to me. Um, and so I think, I think that, you know, anybody, anybody that takes a deep look, if they really want to do it, they'll see these same, same ideas coming out. And that's a beautiful experience. If you, if you come across that. Absolutely. And so talking about language, let's, uh, let's get into Sanskrit. Maybe first, you know, what, what is Sanskrit, uh, according to maybe the traditional study of linguistics and then how has uh, Maharishi's interpretation of the Sanskrit language influenced, you know, your interpretation of it as well? Yeah. So there's kind of the discovery of Sanskrit by the Western um, philologists and, and linguists. That's a very, that's a fascinating story. So I'll mention that. And then sort of the deep um, inner value of, of Sanskrit, which, uh, which we study in the program, which is really also fascinating. So in the West, um, due again to foreign invasions and things like that of India, um, Western scholars became interested in seeing what uh, what these various bodies of knowledge from the Vedic literature um, contained. And there was many sort of German schools and seats of learning. There's Oxford in England, which has a, a seat of Sanskrit and a in a long-standing tradition um, studying the Indian um, cultures. Um, so they discovered these, you know, these ancient texts that were part of an oral tradition that is still maintained, you know, a passing on of knowledge just through speech between a teacher and a student, and the student sort of repeating and then embodying that knowledge and then passing it on eventually to other students. Um, but ev eventually that all became written down. There's these same sort of sets of 
language of text, you know, I wouldn't say of text, but of spoken language that eventually was written down in order to sort of preserve it, to make sure that it would mean, you know, be sustained, even if there wasn't a physical speaker that could pass it on orally. So these texts were produced originally on palm leaves, you take palm leaves and then they cut them into these sort of thin horizontal strips. You take like an iron filing and they etch the Sanskrit of the Devanagari script into the palm leaves and then they they cover it with some kind of oil-based charcoal and then wipe that clean and it leaves these sort of, you know, um, etches of the text. And so then they stack those up so that all of this immense oral tradition was committed mostly to um, the written script on these palm leaves. And then eventually with uh, book production and things like that, they were made into books. And so, um, you know, so these English and, and German primarily um, scholars became fascinated with with what they were learning and what kind of knowledge existed there. And so they, they had people go down and, and gather books and bring them back and they learned they learned Sanskrit, they learned the Sanskrit grammar, they learned how to translate the ancient Sanskrit texts into English, into German, into Russian, or whatever the case might, might be. So they became experts in the, the grammar and, and vocabulary of the language. And then eventually wrote down their, their sort of translations of things. And, um, and then those books became available you know, after sort of Gutenberg and, and, you know, the printing presses and all these books were, were um, available to the public and to acad- academics. And more and more people, I think, began to read these translations and become fascinated. But then there was a certain subset that looked actually at the, uh, the, the philologists or the, the linguists that looked at the, the structure of the language. Many of them came to the conclusion that Sanskrit was some deep relative of Greek and Latin. And by way of Greek and Latin, that meant also German, also French, Spanish, you know, Italian, and, and all this sort of the Western languages. And then eventually people discovered their, that connection of Sanskrit to Eastern languages like Pali and, and Tibetan and all kinds of other things. So these, these philologists um, or linguists um, looked at the language in that way, and then actually discovered that the the grammarian, the original sort of grammarian of Sanskrit, his name is Panini, um, wrote what, what they felt was this incredible opus of grammatical principles that described the language in such precision and how the language is derived from certain verbal roots, very simple one or two syllable roots. Um, now we have sort of you know, sort of the Indo-European uh, root um, roots that have been derived as a kind of a synthesis of all kinds of religions. Nobody actually ever spoke Indo-European or Proto-Indo-European. It's just sort of a, a sort of gathering of, of all those things into one sort of single. Anyway, so you've got all these roots that then you, from which you derive words and, you know, verbs and nouns and participles and all kinds of things. And so Panini is, is seen as this sort of giant in terms of linguistics. Everybody that studies grammar or lingu- linguistics knows about Panini. He's consil- still considered sort of the preeminent grammarian. 
And Panini himself was part of this Vedic tradition, so he he actually felt that his writings were simply committing to text what he had cognized internally. So it, he sort of didn't come up with these ideas of grammar intellectually, as if you know you were thinking sitting sitting around and thinking, well, okay, let me create a language. Actually, like Tolkien and others did a great job, you know, creating the language of Middle Earth and stuff. Fascinating. So, you know, the human intellect can create amazing things. But this is beyond even just sort of just an intellectual approach to language. He felt and described, um, again, that inner transcendental experience, becoming familiar with that settled state of consciousness, and then beginning to see how that state as was actually vibrating in terms of sound values. Then these sound values ultimately give rise to physical forms and the and the material forms of the universe. So he was seeing language from that level. The Western philologists and linguists were seeing it as a just an incredible mathematically precise version of language. So Sanskrit has this, you know, has this position really as being seen as sort of very central to the tree of language, especially in the West, but I think even throughout the East, very much at the root of all, all, all languages. There's some debate about whether it's at the root or up a little bit further. Marshi himself calls it the language of nature. And for just this reason that Panini ultimately describes is that it's simply, it's the language, it's the vibratory modes of consciousness and that our consciousness, your consciousness, my consciousness, the field of consciousness underlying everything has to sort of construct the universe that we perceive in some way. And the Vedic description is that this ultimately happens through impulses, initially through impulses of sound, vibrations of sound that can be perceived within consciousness and then spoken out, you know, and that's what these, the Vedic Rishis, the ancient Vedic seers, did. They perceived it inwardly. They never take individual credit for it. And they were like, this is my discovery. I, I found this. No, they say that this is my simply my perception of, of a universal level of life that's there, that's already there. So then, and then they, they just sort of express it. And then, um, so this is, this brings us now to our approach at MIU to Sanskrit, which is very phonetic based. It's it's very much sound value. It's um, just effortlessly speaking the sounds, has a therapeutic effect. It has a, a developmental influence. It, it seems to, according to brain research, produce the kind of brainwave coherence that is similar to the meditation practice. And so just the, the practice of reciting syllable by syllable in the sequence that the Vedic literature unfolds seems to activate some very special kind of latent, um, latent structure or functioning within the physiology. And um, there's been a lot of um, great research by Dr. Tony Nader to show that all the impulses that are there in the Vedic sounds of Vedic literature actually are, are present within the structure and functioning of different aspects of the physiology. And so you can kind of see now how, how there's a, a very fascinating 
um, practice of just speaking the sounds, reciting the sounds, enlivening those values of structure and functioning within the physiology to um, remind the physiology of its own inherent universal value. So to anywhere in the physiology where there's some imbalance or lack of proper functioning or disorder, if you introduce these sounds, either by sort of listening to them or speaking them out in a very easy and effortless way, then you sort of are re-enlivening the initial and original design of the physiology. And so that sort of um, counteracts any disorder, any imbalance. So there's there's repercussions for this. There's potential potential research that could go into listening to or speaking the sounds of the Vedic texts and actually healing the physiology from within by simply enlivening what's already there, not introducing something um, foreign to the physiology, but simply regenerating it from, from within somehow through sound. So, I mean, in a nutshell, we teach the basics of the Sanskrit alphabet, um, all the 50, well, 48 letters, 50 letters roughly, of those, how to put those sounds together, and then how to recite, you know, the different scripts and texts of the Vedic literature with this knowledge in mind that, it, that it's already sort of within us, within the field of consciousness, within the physiology. So there's so many possible and potential applications for that in the field of health, in the field of education, and, and just in human development generally. So I think it's um, another amazing aspect of, of this, uh, this program. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's such important points to bring out. And uh, especially, you know, as it relates to human health and that kind of thing. And, you know, it definitely mirrors a lot of the other, you know, how sound technology work being done in the broader consciousness community in terms of like, yeah, we, we think these specific frequencies can help these parts of the body. It also plays, you know, like acupuncture, that kind of thing. And I think it, um, again, for the folks who maybe come from more of a materialistic reductionist worldview this can sound like that's crazy right how could how could sanskrit words impact your body but i think this again gets into just how profound you know what maharishi's teaching showed and, and the importance of a consciousness based cosmology in terms of the impact of as above so below and that you know yeah. this as you talk about right the the belief that this that sanskrit is more than just this language but it but it's rather almost like a mathematical code that is the underlying structure of the cosmos of which each and every human being is a relatively small you know independent subtotality of this bigger macro that we live in that's really well stated yeah it's uh, i think you're absolutely right yeah vibratory medicine is really um an expanding field all, all different kinds of sounds, frequencies, general frequencies, but also, uh, you know, language-based sounds, music. I mean, all these things are being sort of um, tested with with physiology and seeing what's happening in the brain, and, and uh, I think more and more things are going to come out there. But um, you touched upon something there that I think is absolutely right. I think this is a, ultimately, this understanding of Sanskrit, the understanding of consciousness and its relationship to matter is sort of a real revolution in the paradigm you know it's sort of we obviously live in a material world we know that matter 
exists, you know, on some level. We can we can feel it, we can touch it, taste it, everything like that. But what physics is telling us, the deepest physics these days, is that matter is ultimately immaterial, that there is no particular fundamental brickwork or building block that structures everything, you know, atomic the, the atomic theory. It's actually fields of intelligence, non-material fields that percolate and become particles, and the particles, you know, congregate and 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 sort of become the forms of the universe. So if you examine it from even from the modern physical level, um, you know, the, the, the material universe seems to disappear at fundamental levels, and so that's right in line with this understanding that consciousness is fundamental. That it's ultimately consciousness, awareness, intelligence that fashions itself and sort of molds itself into all the infinite variety of objects and material forms in the universe. And so this, I keep thinking about this in terms of our, our program, is that it's really, it's a study in a completely new, but obviously very ancient paradigm of understanding. It's flipping the script. And when you you switch it around, both both things still remain, but now you're seeing this side of it, maybe the material side, from a completely new perspective. And so all kinds of new values, understandings, and directions, and purposes can be sort of understood and fathomed from that new perspective. And I think that's one of the more exciting aspects of this program and this knowledge that's been sort of coming out in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm curious in your, uh, in your time, you know, the last few decades with, uh, MIU and, and consciousness, you know, the study of consciousness more broadly, have you seen it gain more broader acceptance and, and kind of, you know, not necessarily just being relegated to this like fringe branch of philosophy to actually folks treating this as a, as a legitimate field of scientific inquiry? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's night and day. You know, when I started, um, studying this, it was in the early 90s. And um, meditation, even yoga at that stage was still considered a little bit sort of peripheral, I don't know, out there because a little um, unique and it's certainly not mainstream, but you go anywhere these days, even small towns, um, even churches like my church where I grew up, the Lutheran Church up in Minnesota, teaches yoga classes, you know, and, and yoga is sort of branched out and sort of expanded into so many different ways and, and things like that. So yoga, meditation, you see mindfulness, you see it on just about every other magazine cover these days, somebody with their eyes closed. And so it's very much in the collective consciousness. And I think part of that is, you know, with anything, with any paradigm shift, it's a, it's a generational thing. I mean, I think um, my generation, your generation, we're all part of the same generation, really, but is is sort of really open to um, all of these ideas. And I think that's what's being reflected now in, in how many people are participating and in, in looking into these types of um, you know, yoga, meditation, Ayurveda. Ayurveda now is like a... Um, I realize now in 2022 i don't really have to explain ayurveda that much <laughs> to people um certainly not yoga um they just kind of know what it is they've seen products 
so it's really it's really night and day and i think it's sort of the development the interest in these topics is increasing um exponentially and um and that's really exciting uh, because these things are really truly valuable um the restfulness that you gain in meditation the flexibility um, the development of the physical nervous system that you gain through yoga, you know, the, the simple and natural um, techniques of herbs, herbs and, and uh, things that are brought about in Ayurveda. All of these things are um, very simple, very natural and very kind of common sense and you just sort of make use of them. I mean, I just think about my own experience and how much explanation was required back in the early days when I s sort of first discovered and started studying these things. Um, you know, just generally, you know, with, with my family, that that had, had its own thing. But just in general, you know, what do you do? What is this? You know, what is meditation? Um, and now it's, you know, people have a really good general idea. I think most everybody's tried some something some mindfulness some meditation some some yoga and and even ayurveda these days um is really a doesn't what is, there's not much of a, a bridge that you have to make to describe what ayurveda is because there's lots of it um going on in in products and herbs and practices and and treatments and things like that so um it's very kind of exciting and liberating you know to to sort of already have a for most people already have a sort of basis of understanding and then and uh you know you don't have to really go into a lot of detail you can sort of get into the good parts of it but it's definitely there's a shift there for sure and i think um you know younger people and and people middle age even older people are more and more open to it you know, maybe it's because there's, you know, there really seems to be a lot of stress and anxiety and and depression and things like that. Maybe the the contrast now is a little more stark, and the idea of of practices and techniques of of deep rest and relaxation and um, inner development and that kind of a thing is more it's just more striking it's more interesting because perhaps you know the way things are right now in society or just because perhaps because it's it's been building you know it's a it's a shift that's sort of been working its way into the forefront of of awareness over decades um and uh so whatever whatever the reason is it's it's an exciting time for all these um all these things that we're looking at and studying and and um and we need it and you know it's it's really necessary not we need leaders and people that that can describe the potential and ap actually teach and and um and do what you're doing you know you're you're podcasting and I, I know you're creating your book and just um getting this really inspiring and practical knowledge out into the collective consciousness, let people, whoever's there can grab it and start using it because um, it's really like collectively, I think we're all gonna, you know, sort of come together on this and really start to change 
change things, you know, not individually, but in society. So it's an exciting time. Yeah, it definitely is. And, and you mentioned, you know, your, your path in terms of, you know, even with your family and then having to explain what you were studying uh, at MIU. And I'm curious, like, you know, what has that journey been like? Did you feel like you're almost like on the defensive of having to explain, you know, like why this is a career path that you're interested in? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. My family, for, for the most part, could see that this was a university and a meditation technique that was um, founded by a by a yogi. You know, there's and there's pictures of Maharishi, and he's a definite kind of traditional yogi. And um, and so that was the first hurdle, you know, f- with the family it was sort of, what is this, you know? And and for them, that was a, a sort of a big deal. It, it sort of brought to mind all kinds of things. And um, you know, and so the the explanation and the connection with them. Um, was was a good challenge at first and i had to mention that this was it's certainly not a religion it's not a um it's not in any way kind of a lifestyle it it is something you have in your daily routine when you meditate all that but it's not any of the sort of uh trappings that they were sort of seeing in that sort of picture of a some organization founded by a yogi i think it's unfortunate that that was you know, that was something that had to be overcome, but it, it is what it is. You know, everybody's coming at it from their own angle. So, um, but eventually my whole family learned how to meditate. My dad, ex-Marine, he meditates regularly and uh, really loves it. And I think it's helped him out immensely. I taught my mom and sister. And uh, that, for me, that was really fulfilling. And, and ultimately those kind of things fell away, those sort of things that, that normally would have sort of um, been barriers for them or obstacles um, just didn't, it didn't matter in the way that they thought it did. So, um, so that's, yeah, that, that, that was kind of a fun challenge at first, but, um, but I think again, generally people are seeing everything in a different light. Now this was, you know, a few decades ago when I learned how to meditate. So, and what do you think it was about Sanskrit in particular that was so interesting to you? I would say two things. I would say the the experience of the kind of, like you were saying, the mathematical um, precision and logic of the language was just fascinating. You know, in the same way that a beautiful um, algorithm or something, you know, that works is, is fascinating to look at how it works. But... Um, the structure of it and the sound value of it. Right away, we learned how to read it, you know, and, and practice it. And just pronouncing the alphabet, it was something really um, fundamental and something really resonant about it. So that was what first sort of jump started my interest. It was it was this sort of visceral experience of Sanskrit. Um, and then I, I was always interested in languages and sort of the source of languages. I, I took Latin in college, um, would have loved to study more Greek. But to see it's, you know, just in terms of the practical utility of understanding like Latin, if you know Latin, then then you can almost figure out just about every other English word and it's how it's derived and what it what its meaning is or what its original meaning may have been. Um, so language has always been fascinating to me. And then to discover that Sanskrit is seen 
as this really ultimate sort of original language or foundational language um, was very fascinating on that level as well. Yeah, totally. And I think when you talk about, you know, the relationship between uh, Sanskrit and Greek and, and other Western languages, you know, I, I definitely noticed that right away as we uh, were learning it in class last semester, just the um, similarities in the the shapes and, and that sort of thing between Sanskrit and Greek, just from, you know, having seen the Greek alphabet. Uh, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, do you see a relationship between Sanskrit and maybe some of the other Eastern religions like, or sorry, Eastern languages like Chinese and Japanese where you don't have like a, a set character count, but more like each each character is its own own word? Or do you think those are fundamentally different types of languages? Yeah, I mean, those, it's certainly more of a, what do they call it, sort of um, visual. It's, it's, um, it is different. I think there's definitely a relation there when you consider the words in sound value. There's a lot of words that cross over, like the word in Sanskrit for consciousness is chit, like C-H-I-T, chit. And in China, they have the word chi, chi, and so that describing that foundational principle which is a consciousness as well so you have these on the on the phonetic level there's much less difference you know on the sort of textual or um the level of the characters of the or the script um it's it's you know there's a wide variety there when you look at chinese when you look at japanese it's the fascinating it's beautiful language um and those characters represent, I think, more visual forms, I think, is the idea. Um, Sanskrit, the the text is is most likely very visual, but maybe on an abstract, deeper level. I haven't quite cracked the code yet of the of the script, of the Devanagari script. I think it's it's a fascinating kind of a thing. It, the connection between the, the letters. You can see some between the Arabic or the Roman letters and and Sanskrit, you can see some relationships. Obviously, you've got the the line that goes through all the different sounds, the the horizontal line that being the really unique feature of of Sanskrit, which I think that line represents the the thread of consciousness that goes through all all various diverse forms of it is is just that central thread, connecting thread is consciousness. Um, but I think on basically in the level of sound, I think a lot of the Eastern languages also are, are deeply tied and must be fundamentally related to Sanskrit. As you move east from India, you see more and more, more connection, more connection, and then it sort of becomes a little less and less as you move further east. But phonetically, I think they're, they're, they're ultimately very close like that. That makes sense. Um, and one of the things that we learned about Sanskrit last semester that I found super fascinating, I'm sure I'm going to butcher this explanation, but uh, my, my understanding is like how did, in traditional modern society, we assign words to things and we think that the label is the thing. But Sanskrit, at least Maharishi's interpretation of it, is that script kind of needs to be flipped, right? That the the sound value, the tone, the the noise itself in Sanskrit is what you're describing and and the closer you get to matching the sound value and whatever it is that you're you know perceiving in the realm of the senses that 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 connection relates to what we were talking about earlier in terms of like 
the closer you are in both sound value and form, the more that that you know connection between the language and, and what you're describing is is felt. I, that's, I'm sure that's a that's a terrible explanation, but wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Yeah, no, you you did a good job describing it. Um, this is what's called the nama rupa relationship, and the name form name is nama rupa is form. And in Sanskrit, there's considered to be a one-to-one relationship between those two things. Like, all the physical forms of the universe also have a vibrational value. You know, it's the, the name of them or the sound of them. And that sound corresponds to the inner value of the form. The form is just an expression of the sound in the same way that material forms in this understanding or paradigm are the expression of vibratory modes of consciousness. So it's the vibratory value that is consistent both in the name and the form. And so you have, you know, in in speaking Sanskrit, you you speak the names, and because the name and the form are, are deep, are connected completely, you enliven the form. When you speak the name, you enliven the form. Um, and so there's, you know, there's, um, there's the effect of that. If you're just speaking these sounds, you're enlivening the form, whether it's a form in the physiology or something like that. So, um, that's interesting, but this is in distinction to a language in which, um, a particular form, you start with a form and then you apply a name that's maybe not necessarily tied to the vibrational quality of that form, but a name like a uh, sort of a conventional name, something that uh, people just utilize because they all agree that this is what we called it. It's a name that's been applied to this object. And that's how we normally consider language. We feel like somewhere in the past, um, you know, objects were sort of called a particular way because some person did that first and then it carried on something like that everybody agrees upon the conventional naming of of things but in sanskrit that that is obviously kind of different than you've got the names that are inherently connected to the form and so <clears throat> you have the ability to sort of in one sense you have the ability to kind of manifest the form by speaking the name like if you in a way, it's a very efficient value of language because if you have the ability to communicate in this way, um, you would sort of naturally evoke the quality of the form in the name and the other person receiving the listener might feel it. Anyway, there's some really fascinating implications of that understanding of a natural language in which the name and the form are combined. But that's I think you spoke that out quite well. Your memory from the spring is is good. <laughs> oh, thank you. You know, it was really cool even just uh, starting to practice, you know, just, uh, as, you know, in, in supplementing TM to listening to uh, the Vedic Pandits, you know, reciting Sanskrit. And you know, there are even times when I'd be listening to Sanskrit where, I, like, you could feel a certain part of your body, like, being impacted. And that was a really wild phenomenon for me. Yeah, that that is striking when it happens. It's... um and there's a lot of Vedic literature out there. You you might have listened to the what's called the Veda app. Um, there's a there's an app on the 
Mac store and then the <clears throat> and then on um, on the Google app thing too. Lots of different recitations from all the different aspects of the Vedic literature, each of them with its own inherent quality and sort of enlivens a particular form, like we were talking about the the sound and the physiology having that connection. Um, so it's not surprising. And this is some of the great research that's taking place here at the university in terms of brain research is finding that, um, yeah, just listening to these sounds, which anybody can do, you know, you have to learn and be trained a little bit initially in, in speaking and reading Sanskrit, but anybody can listen to these sounds. In fact, one of our students um, who is a military veteran felt like this would be an ideal thing to apply for, for veterans with PTSD because she had such a profound experience with it, just listening. It's almost like uh, that transcending experience. It's sort of, it does something, and it, it, it induces some relaxation or sort of balancing of the physiology. And um, so she feels like, let's apply, let's give this to veterans. You know, you'd have to explain to them what, what they're listening to, but so this is a this is a huge new field. I mean, I think the the potential there is is immense, and um, and you've already kind of had some experiences with it. So it's, it's it's something that everybody should have a chance to to try out. And I think um, a similar phenomenon that is just as mind boggling, if not more so, is the whole idea of collective consciousness. You know, which you were touching on earlier, and and not even in the metaphorical sense which i think a lot of people probably heard of that idea collective conscious collective on you know subconscious whatever but but actually in the scientific physical properties of field effects of of consciousness that you know group meditation is not just some placebo effect but in fact the combined effects of, of resonating in that positive you know well-intentioned light like that it actually magnifies the impact of your thoughts. So maybe you could talk a little bit about yeah. that, uh, that, uh, you know, understanding. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And you've got a, a class coming up in the spring called Collective Consciousness and Leadership. I think you're going to love it. Um, yeah, the idea is if consciousness is a field and we're all, um, we're all immersed in that field, we're all individual expressions of that field, that everything we do and speak and say and, and act and behave is a projection into the field. And so if, if many, many people are are stressed, anxious, then the field will sort of re reflect that. The collective consciousness will reflect that. As more and more people um, meditate and experience that inner field directly, then you see more, there's more peace, there's more rest, there's more happiness, there's more, um, there's less depression. And um, the more and more people that, that meditate together as a group, then the more that collective consciousness reflects the inner value of that field. Um, so everybody, that's the main point, that everybody individually is, is sort of influencing the field in their own particular way for, for, for better or worse, you know, whether it's stressed or projecting peace and happiness. Um, so that's a principle, but... It doesn't take everybody to meditate to produce a really positive influence. Just a small percentage of people in any population. The U.S. has about 300 million people. Um, it turns out maybe 30,000 people meditated together 
you could have this really significant influence. It's called a 1% effect, or some scientists have called it the Marshy effect. As he predicted in 1960, if just 1%, or I think 10% at that time, meditated, then then that would that influence would spread. That peacefulness, that um, restfulness, that orderliness would be would percolate more in society. And so eventually some scientists decided to measure that. And up until now, there's been something like 50 really rigorous um, scientific research experiments on the group, the effects of group meditation on a surrounding area or a country or even the world, depending on the size of the group. And that can only happen if consciousness is a pervasive feel because in some of these research studies there's a large group of people meditating in one place but hundreds of miles away they're seeing influences like reduced crime reduced hospitalizations um, greater cooperation um, more um, patents for new inventions and you know on the positive side Um, so the results are are just amazing and um, one thing I don't know if you done this but there's a, a group meditation every day with with bob roth who's one of the big kind of meditation teachers yeah and so you just you call in you sit down close as you meditate and there's like four or five thousand people on those calls that are meditating at the same time and those are kind of the criterion that scientists have found produces this effect and, and if there's a group of meditators generally in one place but in that place can be spread out now and and sort of um, so it's, it's a very important kind of social tool that needs to be brought out. There's certain, um, congressmen and women that, that have picked up on it. And I think because the collective consciousness is kind of evolving towards this deep understanding, more of an understanding of the inner value of life, I think more and more you'll, you start to see proposals for this and hopefully that'll catch fire. In fact, the military, there's a, there's a, um, the U.S. military is planning on, um, they're doing research, a study right now, it's called the phase three research where they've got almost a thousand people involved in it. Um, and they, based on their preliminary work with veterans and active personnel, um, it may be very soon that you see a, a peace creating, um, uh, sort of part of the military, you know, individuals that are not trained or merely trained for battle or for conflict but that are meditating together and actually creating an influence of orderliness peace harmony sort of strength for the country by meditating together it's 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 an amazing thing and it's it seems like we're getting very close to that i think more and more people are open to the idea and putting money into it you know the u.s government is paying for active military personnel to learn TM. And so um, so we're on the cusp of of make, taking advantage of this field that we're all a part of, you know, in this particular way to promote peace and cooperation and all that. I think that's really cool. And, you know, and, and you talk about the military, I think also in terms of like traditional healthcare, like for me, it, it could be pretty mind-boggling why we continue to have such a broken healthcare system with skyrocketing costs. People are not getting healthier. And then you look at, you know, some of the research we, we read uh, last semester, just from the results of TM, some of the work that, you know, Dr. Travis has been doing and like, it's unbelievable, right? For a, 
a very small cost, you can start this daily practice that has just unbelievable results from the physiological perspective, from, you know, of reactivating your IQ from intelligence, creativity, like it's just, and I've, I've experienced it directly just in the last year. So I guess, you know, what I'm getting at is like, with all that positive results with the relatively low cost of meditation, you know, versus traditional healthcare, why don't you think we've made more progress at this point? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I, I don't have a straightforward answer. I mean, we everybody knows the adage, um, an ounce of prevention is worth, worth a pound of cure. And like you said, meditation, currently TM is maybe a few hundred bucks to, to take the whole course. And it's a lifetime, lifetime course with follow-up and just for that course fee. Um, and then there's programs through the David Lynch Foundation and other things that um, help provide the funds so people give to the donation and that pays for teachers to teach inner city students and and homeless and uh, Native Americans and stuff um, how to meditate. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a it's frustrating in a way because I I think it is a paradigm shift. I think the idea that closing the eyes without anything other than your own physiology, you know, there's no food, there's no herbs. I mean, there's no there's no medicine, there's no apparatus of, of medical treatment or therapy. It's just simply making use of the physiology in a way that the physiology fully enjoys and gets replenished by. Marcia says it's like watering the root of a tree. You know, the tree has so many branches, like you mentioned, all parts of, the, of life. You've got personality, psychology, physiology. You've got your social relationships. You've got your work and all that. All these are branches of the tree. That we all try to attend to individually, but just by through one simple procedure of watering the root of the tree, all these things tend to flourish and and uh, become healed and all that. So, so the idea that that there's something so simple and non-material that can be done that can be so effective on the on the level of prevention and on the level of development. Um, is still a, a a sort of a big leap, you know. It's sort of a jump for people to get to that if they're if they're not maybe inclined or understanding of it. Um, so it's still there, but it, that gap is probably shrinking little by little. And I think more people are, for whatever reason, um, they come will come to meditation, you know, as. Their doctor might tell them. They might get to a point where the doctor just says, you know what, this has been found to be really effective to reduce anxiety and stress. It's been really been found to be really effective to increase productivity, those kind of things. You should try it. And many doctors are doing this now. They're they're learning. They've looked at the research. Um, so they might people might hear it from their doctor. They might find it on their own. They might be listening to a podcast like this or reading a book and um, and something makes sense. And they can try it. And um, I even think there's a, I think people can try, they can learn TM and there's even a, like a satisfaction guarantee. I mean, if you can just try the practice, see what, how simple it is and what the experience is like. And if you don't enjoy that, then you get your money back. I and mean, it's kind of an amazing um, offer, <laughs> you know, in the meditation field. But 
it just shows really how effective it is. And I think everybody that tries it will see how, how beneficial it is, but it's a jump. It's still sort of a, of a jump. And especially, you know, if you're talking about modern medicine and modern, modern medical education, there's a strong emphasis on the materiality of the physiology. And it's really, it's still rooted in, in 19th and 18th century science that this is a physical universe built made up of physical building blocks that if you adjust or or manage some of the chemical building blocks you can alter the physiology for better or for worse um it's the allopathic model and that has to shift and that's sort of what we're seeing hopefully and that can maybe be accelerated the more knowledge and information gets out i hope so and it feels like it it is accelerating you know i'm in Colorado. So, you know, I think uh, we have a lot of that community in particular, but even still, I, I see it happening uh, countrywide. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Colorado, you're in a great place for that. Everybody's, yeah, I wouldn't say everybody. I know there's two sides out there. There's the sort of, you know, both, both sides, but, um, but it's very easy to sort of introduce these ideas yeah. in Colorado and have, have a receptive audience. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Well, Dr. Wegman, this has been such a fun conversation. Uh, you know, before I let you go, I wanted to end the conversation talking to you uh, about world peace. Uh, and, you know, you talked about Maharishi's analogy of, you know, watering the root to, to you know, uh, flourish the plant. And, and that has always really resonated with me. And, and I think similarity, similarly, he's had to use that same analogy with regards to world peace, right? Of, you know, TM being a way to plant the seeds. And then the more people who practice it, you know, it branches off in unexpected ways, but the end goal, or, or hopefully, you know, the end of the, you know, the collective Dharma here is to get to a point where we have no more violence and no more war. And we collectively as humans can transcend to a higher state of consciousness, to a collective state of enlightenment or ascension or, or whatever you want to call it. And I think, you know, you mirror up that philosophy with where the world is today, right? And and unfortunately, it looks like we're probably closer to World War Three than we maybe have ever been, you know, at least since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so I guess my question is, you know, where, where do you stand on the practicality of us achieving world peace? Do you think it's still possible and a, and a worthy goal worth striving for? Or is it, you know, have we missed that? Have we missed the boat on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I love I love the question. I, I think it's very plausible. I think the research bears it out. I think there is a shift. I think I think although the world situation feels a little bit precarious right now on the surface, my personal reaction to war, for example, in the Ukraine, um, was how anachronistic it felt you know just how unnecessary you know and, and how um unusual i mean i know this it gets into other issues and wars have come up throughout the world for for various reasons but um to me and and uh family and stuff it just it's sort of surprising like is this really an approach to you know, gaining territory, it doesn't work and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to make sense. But I think, um, yeah, no, I think world peace is absolutely a laudable goal. It's, it's attainable. It seems 
overwhelming to think, you know, how can we bring this about? How are people are actually going to get together and uh, live peacefully together and, and recognize each other as a left hand and a right hand of the same body of consciousness? You know, like, it, it seems crazy that the right hand would injure the left hand. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think that would be anything you would do. Um, and that's because, you know, those two things are connected. But if you don't recognize that or experience that, then, then yeah, there can be conflict. It doesn't, you know, you can see the conflict between these things. So I think the idea is that through understanding that we're living in a, in a, in a universe of consciousness, the expression of a field of consciousness that is pervasive through through all of us we're all expressions of that same field um there's a there's a quote from the bhagavad gita um for someone who is enlightened who sees the self in all beings and all beings in the self so you, as as enlightenment develops as human potential is unlocked and realized more and more individuals and collective individuals, societies, communities, countries, begin to recognize the other as an extension of one's own self. And so, you know, racial disparities, ethnic disparities, political disparities, all these things don't reflect the true reality. And um, as that reality dawns, it, it dawns in experience first. So, as many people that can learn how to transcend and promote peace within themselves and then collectively meditate together, uh, preferably in large groups. And we're, we're always trying to create a, a large group here in Fairfield, but anywhere in the world we can create groups. Then that, that harmonious, peaceful, coherent influence that's reflective of the nature of reality will percolate more and more in everybody's awareness. More people will recognize you know, one day you, you look at somebody as your sort of enemy that you're in conflict with, the next day, without any explanation, you find that they're just almost, they're, they're like your family. You want to protect them as much as you want to protect yourself. So these are the types of realizations that will dawn as consciousness is developed individually and, and again, collectively. So I, I think, and the, re, you know, the research is there, like like we were saying earlier, it's... um. It's a, it's still a paradigm shift or a jump for people to recognize it, but um, but since the scientific research has been at least established the principle of it, it doesn't take much for somebody to maybe fund or look at a larger study or a government to create a group to see the effects of this. And I think when people see the effects, if there's a model of it somewhere in the world, perhaps then um, then other governments will see it, other communities will see it, and, um, and then there'll be a, a snowball effect. And I think it could happen very quickly, and we, we need that. You know, the climate needs it. And, um, and so let's make it happen. Yep. What can you say? You know? Yeah, <laughs> let's make it happen. And, uh, and, you know, I think as you talk about the research, I mean, it, it really is there. It's, it's just... You know, been overlooked by people, I think. But, you know, you talk about the Maharishi effect and some of the research that was done. I believe what was the, uh, it was, it was a conflict between Israel and Lebanon, right? The, in the early 1990s? Yeah. Could, could you talk a little That's bit correct. about that study? Yeah, sure. That, I believe that study was, 
um, it was very thorough. The, the sort of the p value on that study was like one in yeah. two hundred million, which means that the the possibility that 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 the results of that study were due to coincidence or chance is less than one in two hundred <laughs> million or something. I forget how many decimal points. It was it was dramatic and and it showed the real rigorous nature. The researchers up to that point had and learned a lot from previous studies and applied all the sort of scientific techniques like time series analysis to this particular study. But it basically showed that as the there was a group of people meditating in Israel, I think, or in Lebanon, either side, um, and as the number of people increased, if you're looking at a chart, the number of people in the group increased then the negativity in the war deaths and conflicts at that time, it was, a, it was an all-out war between Lebanon and Israel, then those negative values decreased. And then as the size of the group decreased, then those negative values kind of went back up. As the size increased, the, the negative values went down. So you see this correlation following through time. And that particular study, I think, was accepted into the Journal of Conflict Re- Resolution. Um, it's Yale, Yale University's sort of um, one of the top journals in the field of social research. And the editor and some of the, the people on the, the peer, it's a peer-reviewed journal. And so there are professionals in the field of conflict management and international conflict that looked at the results of this study. Um, many of them objected to the study because they, they couldn't see how... Uh, a possible mechanism it didn't make sense that you know how does this work it doesn't people closing their eyes and war deaths going down but when all the other factors possible factors are were sort of reduced and and sort of eliminated from from the explanation the editor said with with some apprehension we had to pr- we had to publish this study because the science was sound and the results were were um arrived at very systematically and even though we don't necessarily understand it um, we feel compelled to produce it so it was published in that particular journal and then and there were you know all kinds of reactions from that you know sort of awe and wonder probably from from many people in the field um, a, a stern sort of um, resistance to it obviously because it's nothing anybody could have conceived of. Um, one of my good friends, Car- Dr. Carla Brown, um, she works in Chicago and, and teaches meditation and, and does some other things. Um, she did her doctorate at Harvard University on this particular sub- subject as to when there's research that is sound, um, but it's sort of beyond the sort of the paradigm thinking of, of the field, what is the what is the reaction to that? What um, you know? What what would cause somebody to object to sound research that you know that didn't make sense but was still sound? Um, so her dissertation is all about that. Um, Dr. Carla Brown, I forget the name of the dissertation, but um, she looked at those factors that would cause resistance in some people f- to the acceptance of that, and it was fascinating. Um, so those are the things that was back in the actually i think in the mid to late 1980s so it's been a long time since then and and um 
And I'm not sure, I'm, I'm kind of curious what the reactions would be if that particular study came out again or was sort of republished. But uh, I think we'd probably see a slightly different reaction to it. Maybe some more openness, perhaps. Well, I'll make sure to post a link to that study in the show notes. Any other recommendations you have for folks who are maybe interested in a uh, Consciousness and Human Potential program or the TM program? Yeah, sure. I mean, miu.edu, um, very simple. We've got a great website, lots of um, good detailed knowledge. If you want to look into this program, there's descriptions of all the courses. Online, it's, a, it's about a two-and-a-half to three-year program. On campus, where it's a one-year full-time program, and then we have a PhD in that as well for anybody that really wants to dig deeply into it. Um, TM.org is, is a great website. That's the sort of national website for Transcendental Meditation. I think um, davidlynchfoundation.org is, is fabulous. You can see what a lot of um, teachers are doing in, in um, crisis-prone populations throughout the U.S. and around the world. Um, the effect of meditation to solving some really entrenched problems and issues. Um, but those would be good places to start, and I think you could find other other connections to that but uh, take a look at that and um, we are always as as you know Jordan we had a good conversation before we even started the program so I'm happy to talk to people um, if they want to contact the admissions department at MIU um, or just look us up we're actually going to be starting a, a, like I mentioned a podcast um, we'll be putting our productions onto the website just so you'll hear more about some of the topics that we spoke about today but um anyway we're really excited and, and have great students like yourself who are really looking deeply and and um and bringing the world some really fascinating new perspectives and um anyway so i'm i'm really happy to we could meet today and and let's do some more absolutely thanks again dr Wegman, and thank you you know for running such an incredible program it's been just so mind opening and 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 fun and you know I've I've really enjoyed getting to meet all my classmates and, and teachers thus far into the program and only a semester and so excited to see what the inter has uh, in store. <laughs> yeah, beautiful, excellent, Jordan. Well, yeah, we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Have a great rest of your afternoon. Thanks so much. Sound is vibration. Vibration is sound. Sound is vibration. Vibration is sound. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. One of my favorite aspects of Maharishi Vedic science is that it has caused me to flip many preconceived notions I took for granted. The true nature of sound and language being one case in point. Sound is vibration. Vibration is sound. That is such a simple statement, yet its implications are so profound. We in the West tend to minimize the importance of sound. We've lost the connection between sound, form, and vibratory consciousness. A thing is a thing because a guy named it that sometime. End of story, who cares? But perhaps sound is much more than that, as the Vedic tradition has always understood. Perhaps Nikola Tesla was onto something when he said, If you want to know the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Perhaps we humans aren't so much material beings, but rather forms of consciousness resonating at our own timber, 
uniquely individual like snowflakes, yet unified as part of the same cosmic symphony. The idea of unity through diversity reminds me of chapter 2, verse 45 of the Bhagavad Gita. I wanted to share Maharishi's commentary on this verse, as it should demonstrate one of the many reasons Maharishi attracted students around the world, namely his ability to simply explain abstract philosophical ideas. Bhagavad Gita chapter 2 verse 45 translates to, The Veda's concern is with the three gunas. Be without the three gunas, O Arjuna, freed from duality, ever firm in purity, independent of possessions, possessed of the self. Maharishi's commentary reads, This is the technique of instantaneous realization. The Lord shows Arjuna a practical way of converging the the many-branched mind into the one-pointedness of the resolute intellect. Here is an effective technique for bringing the mind to a state where all differences dissolve and leave the individual in a state of fulfillment. Everything that has so far been said by Lord Krishna is to prepare Arjuna to understand this practice of bringing his mind from the field of multiplicity to that of eternal unity. This practice is to brighten all aspects of his life by bringing his mind to transcendental consciousness, the limitless source of life, energy, wisdom, peace, and happiness. It is to raise him to that cosmic status which harmonizes all the opposite forces of light. Modern psychological theories investigate causes in order to influence effects. They grope in darkness to find the cause of darkness in order to remove it. In contradiction, here is the idea of bringing light to remove darkness. This is the principle of the second element. If you wish to produce an effect on the first element, ignore that element, do not seek its cause, influence it directly by introducing a second element. Remove the darkness by introducing light. Take the mind to a field of happiness in order to relieve it of suffering. However, even if we accept that by investigating the cause, it is easy to influence the effect, we shall find that this verse will serve our purpose for it provides a technique by which the ultimate cause of all human life can be investigated. If knowledge of the cause can help to influence the effect, then knowledge of the ultimate cause of life will effectively put an end to all suffering. The greatness of Lord Krishna's teaching lies in its direct practical approach and its completeness from every point of view. The idea of introducing a second element and the idea of investigating the cause in order to influence its effect represent two principles directly opposed to each other, yet both of them are fulfilled in one technique. It is this completeness of practical wisdom that has made the Bhagavad Gita immortal. Lord Krishna commands Arjuna, Be without the three gunas. Be without activity. Be yourself. This is resolute consciousness, the state of absolute being, which is the ultimate cause of all causes. This state of consciousness brings harmony to the whole field of cause and effect and glorifies all life. So with that, I wish you all a state of consciousness which brings harmony to your whole field of cause and effect, a state which glorifies all of your life. Here is my friend and classmate, Gita Vedanti, reciting chapter 2, verse 45 of the Bhagavad Gita. Trigunya Vishaya Veda Nistraigunyo bhavarjuna Nirdvando nitya sattvasto Niryoga kshema atmavan The Vedas concern is with the three gunas. 
be without the three gunas o arjuna freed from duality ever firm in purity independent of possessions possessed of the self